If you brought a Bible this, this morning, turn to, to 1 Samuel in chapter 1. We're going to begin. Uh, just, just by way of reminding ourselves of where we are together as a church family, we're doing a, an overview of, of the Old Testament. And, and one of the reasons it's beneficial to do that for us is it really brings light to the New Testament where the majority of Christians like to spend their time because it's easier to read, right? Um, but, but in addition to that, it's, it's God's Word. And um, God's Word changes lives. It has the power to transform in ways that I could religiously just, just guilt you um, into things or, or point out things for us and try to force people to participate in following God. That, but I don't think that's what God's desire is. I think God's desire is to work in our hearts relationally and for Him to grow in us. And, and the more we understand His Word, the more we open the door for God to communicate to us in that way. God gave us his word that we could understand him. The Bible tells us in John 4, 24, he who worships him must worship him in spirit and, and in truth. I mean, God's identified himself in a, in a way that is truthful for our hearts to connect to him and understanding him in our worship. When you connect to him relationally, you, you need to know who you're connecting to. And a lot of our Bible is made up of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. And a lot of times we balk at understanding or reading the Bible because, because it looks like a giant mystery to us. It, it can be intimidating. The more you can understand God's Word and how it pieces together, the more you can appreciate God's Word. And one of the things we did when we started this series is we handed out that book, Know Your Bible. And the important thing for us as a, as a body of believers is when you're reading God's Word, one of the key things you can do in your understanding of it is, is to get a little bit of background or understanding of a, a book of the Bible before you begin to read it. I Meaning it's good to just pick a book of the Bible and go through it, but the more you can understand why the writer wrote what he wrote and what's going on with the audience to, to whom he's writing to, the better you can appreciate God's Word. It brings life to the passages as you read it and you interact with the stories or the characters and the narratives or the letters as the Apostle Paul writes or, the, or Moses that we looked at together has, has written. This morning we're in the book of Samuel and 1 Samuel. As we follow this in a chronological sense, Samuel is the last judge that Israel has. You know, last week, Richie talked about this, but after Joshua led the nation of Israel into the land of Canaan, they, they took over the land that God had promised to them through Abraham. That, that at that moment, Israel then became governed after Joshua through a series of judges. And you have a book in your Bible called Judges. <laughs> it writes all about that, Right. And come at the conclusion of Judges, there comes the story of the last judge by a man who is named Samuel. Samuel not only is a judge for Israel, but he's also a priest working in the temple. He is the last judge that will exist in the nation of Israel before a king is called into the land. And so within this book, you see a priest working as a judge who then led just before the arrival of the king. If I were just to give you a picture in your mind, if you're thinking as we go through this together, how does this work together in our Bible? You have this little illustration in, in the bulletin this morning, but this is where the books of the Bible fall into place for us. So you have Abraham following on the very bottom, existing in the 19th century BC, Moses in the 15th, and Saul and Samuel, who we're going to talk about today in about the 11th century BC. The books of the Bible that are listed above those names give an indication of where in the timeline these, these books exist and according to the person that we've talked about together. So the book of Genesis spans this enormous period of, of time in which we, we discussed together. The book of Job is some, somewhere written in that time frame. We have no idea where, but the indication is it's probably come before, before Abraham because there's no, there's no writing about the Old Testament law in the book of Job. 
Moses then writes, after Genesis, describing the previous history before him, writes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all taking place within the the time frame of Moses' life. And then Joshua comes along after Moses, leads the nation of Israel into the land of Israel, and titles uh, the book, uh, the title of the book is Joshua. Shortly after Joshua comes the Judges, in which the book of Ruth is written during the time of Judges. And then today we're talking about 1 Samuel. And, and talking about 1 Samuel, it immediately begins to describe for us the kings of Israel. Given a little backdrop to, to the book of Samuel and how it begins, Samuel has a, a mother, all of us do, right? Except for maybe Adam and Eve. And, and, um, and Samuel, uh, his, his mother's name is, is Hannah. And Hannah is barren. She can't have kids. And her heart's desire is to have children. And the book of Samuel opens up with, with Hannah going to the temple, praying before the Lord that, that God would allow her to have a child. And, and she makes this vow to God that if God allows her to have a child, she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And so Hannah's desire, if God gives her a child, is then to return that child back to the temple in order for the child to serve God and to grow in that temple serving him. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that Hannah doesn't indeed have a child. And chapter 2 of Samuel opens up with Hannah singing a song about the wonder of God just showing himself in her life but providing her with a child. You know, one of the beautiful things about the, the passage of 1 Samuel in chapter 2 when Hannah sings this song is that when you turn to the Gospels and you read in Luke chapter 1 when Mary finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus, the same song that Hannah sung when she found out she was pregnant with Samuel is the same song that Mary sings when she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus. And if you ask yourself the question, what, I don't know what people did before iPhones and cable television. You know, sometimes they get in that place, what in the world happened in society? The answer is they, they just made up songs, right? That's all they did. And, and Hannah writes a song, and, and Mary sings that song and just worship before the Lord. And Hannah allows Samuel to be a priest before God. The priestly position in the nation of Israel was considered a sacred position. Hannah knew the sacredness of this, and so in response to God blessing her life with such a child, Hannah then promises to return that child to the Lord as a sacrifice or as an offering for him to serve as a priest. A priest in the nation of Israel was a sacred position. In fact, in in Exodus chapter 19, it tells us that God says to the nation of Israel that he wants to make all of them a holy people, a a priesthood before the Lord. And in in chapter 20 of Exodus, the nation of Israel rejects the idea they don't want God's presence before them. And so God sets apart one tribe, one people group to be the priestly representation for the nation of Israel coming from the tribe of Levi. And out of the tribe of Levi, they select one family to represent the high priestly position in the nation of Israel. And that comes in in the position of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. A priest's position before God is simply this, to represent the people to God. In the history of the nation of Israel, there are these two positions that rise. One is a a prophet and one is a priest. And the prophet's purpose is to represent God to the people. and, and, And the priest's purpose, the primary purpose is to represent the people to God. As a matter of fact, Samuel, in, in, in the book of Samuel, it tells us that uh, uh, 
Eli is the priest over the temple, and, and he's talking to his sons in this passage in chapter 2 and verse 25. And his sons, it tells us in the Bible, are wicked. And they don't understand the sacredness of the responsibility that God has given them to represent the people to God. And so in warning to his sons, he says this, If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Saying to his sons, sons, I don't don't think you understand how sacred and how important your responsibility is to this nation and to this world. That what God has called you to do is so important that God has set you apart in in this. And and you need to stop what you're doing and and sober up and recognize the importance of, of forsaking sin, turning to Christ, and representing your people before God. Responsibility of a priest is to be the mediator. A sacred position of standing up on behalf of people before the Lord. The Bible tells us that while Eli's sons ignored that respected position before God, Samuel didn't. Chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, it shares a story, I should tell you, the backdrop in chapter 3 is, Samuel is in the, in the temple and he's serving the Lord and he goes to bed at night and he, and he hears this call. He hears his name being called. And Samuel gets up and he runs to Eli's room expecting that Eli had, had been calling him. And he, and he tells him, the young boy, just go back to bed. I'm not calling you. And three times this happens throughout the night. And finally Eli says, listen, it's, it's not me. Next time you hear that call, you need to make sure it's maybe, maybe the, not the Lord calling your life. And so it tells us in verse 10, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Can I tell you when we talk about the sacredness of position before the Lord, maybe in particular the priestly position or any relationship that we have before Christ in any aspect, The Christian life can just be summed up to the idea of what this verse expresses. God speaks, we listen and respond. As a matter of fact, on on Sunday morning as a church family, if I could just share the simplicity of of what we just want to see happen here on churches. We want to see the people of God connecting with God relationally and expressing that in love for one another. If we do that, we win. The simplicity of the Christian life, that is, that is what it's about. God speaks, we listen, and we respond. The Bible describes this as taking place in the life of Samuel. And I, I've hoped that you've seen this throughout the book of Genesis and everything that we've covered in the stories this far. When you look at, at, at the resume of the individuals that God has called, I would put that as the not impressive list for the most part of individuals that Jesus uses. The things that they've done or the, the, even, even the, the falling short that they continue to perpetuate in their relationship with God, it's not always impressive. Matter of fact, left into themselves, it's not impressive. And Samuel, in these moments, it's, it's not impressive. He's just a young boy. But the Lord uses hearts that are willing. And the Lord speaks to hearts that are open. And while these young men that are Eli's son are not understanding of the position that God has called them to, Samuel sees the sacredness of it. I don't know what's going on in his head. 
Maybe he's thinking about the sacrifice his own mother made that he could walk with the Lord. Maybe that relationship he had with her was impactful. This was so important to my mom. I've become to the place in my life where I am now making it personal for me. And God is speaking to me. And as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that in, in the life of Samuel in chapter seven or chapter three and verse seven, just previous to this, it says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Meaning God desires for all of us to know him. It tells us that in First Peter three nine. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God calls us to that relationship in him. There is a connection between hearing God's word and allowing that word to transform our lives. As a a church family, our our primary concern isn't that you uh, attend church or it isn't that you you follow the rules of whatever we talk about or or that you fit into the mold of what you think church is about. The primary concern of us uh, as a church is that you know him. That when God calls you, listen. Samuel didn't yet know him and God comes before him and Samuel responds. This idea of knowing God supersedes anything else in the Christian life. It is the place through which God's spirit comes into you and you commune with him. Matter of fact, Jesus talked about the significance of it in Matthew 7, 22 looking at the religious leaders of the day who are following the rules and attending the church services and doing all the things their peers tell them to do. And it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look, Jesus, we live the religion. And he says this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's interesting in verse 22, all these people would say they're obeying the law. (laughs) And in verse 23, Jesus calls them lawless. Why? Because they missed the point. They missed what God had called them to do. That's simply to know him. The position that Samuel has before the Lord is sacred. And he appreciates the sacredness of the ability that God has given him to know him and to represent the people of Israel before the Lord. Samuel hears and Samuel calls. Samuel hears and Samuel responds. Book of Samuel sets this idea up for us because it's about to explain to us through the rest of this book how Israel continues to ignore the simplicity of what a relationship with God is about. Matter of fact, when you, when you leave the book of Judges into the book of Samuel, the continued theme that's restated over and over in the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, they understood that God may have called them to something particular, but what they desired is to come up with their own moral compass and the way in which they pursued and desired to live in, in this world. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Matter of fact, the book of Samuel tells us that Israel altogether ignores God. This morning, uh, in talking about Samuel, I'm, I'm going to just give you a little bit of warning as we get into this. We're going to talk about politics, right? 
Everyone rolls back in their head. I, I, you can't avoid this when you get to when you get to Samuel. We're talking about kings, so a political understanding becomes important. But we're going to talk about it in an important way. And, and one of the reasons I want to talk about it is because um, I'll give you an example. Last night I was driving to the airport to pick up some people, and their flight got delayed, and so I had some extra time to listen to Christian radio. And so I was listening to Christian radio. I thought it was Christian radio, but all it turned out to be was was Christians talking about politics on the radio. Um, uh, their only identification was, I'm a Christian, and now here comes all of my politics. There was no, nothing about Jesus ever spoken after that. But here's what they did. They started to tell why, why every, religion, or excuse me, every political leader in the world is somehow the Antichrist. I mean, it didn't matter. They were throwing everyone under the bus. Everyone is the like Antichrist. And I, you know, I'm hearing this as a believer, and I'm thinking, if the world is listening to this right now, they are just going to think we're crazy. We're crazy. You know, it, there, there is a way to talk about pol- politics that is godly, and there is a way to talk about politics that you just look like you are, you know, from the backwoods of Kentucky or something. It's not... It's not it's not healthy. And when you get to 1 Samuel, Samuel starts to talk about politics. And I'm not talking about this to, to bash any political position or any political person. What I want to do is give us a summary of the idea of what God created this political arena for. Okay? And God to control our hearts and the choices that we make for Him. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 19 begins to tell us that Israel desires a king. And the motivation for desiring a king isn't godly. Uh, I would say that there's a distinction to be made here because God and the nation of Israel is working in a different way than he works in other nations today. God, in building the nation of Israel, is building a theocracy in which he is, is the head, okay? So when we talk about Israel desiring a king and it's sinful, I don't think that it's wrong to have political leaders today. I think it's special to the nation of Israel in this passage. But it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. So it's saying Samuel saw his position as sacred. Samuel's representing that position faithfully, and the people don't care. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also, also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And so the nation of Israel says, listen, we understand God wants a theocracy, but, but uh, Samuel, we want to be like everybody else, Right? We want kings just like everyone else does. The cool kids have it, and we want to be the cool kids, right? When, when, when you're a kid, you call that peer pressure. When you're an adult, you get too, too mature, and so we call it people-pleasing. But it's the same, right? It's the same. And the idea of the nation of Israel, maybe, maybe if they were around today, they would describe it this way. Samuel, we want to be politically correct. Hmm. You ever thought about that word? Politically correct. My fear in saying that word is the emphasis that we're saying in identifying that term is is that we want the political leaders to determine what is politically correct, or or we want our political leaders to determine what's what's right and what's wrong. I got to tell you, as as a nation or as an individual under any government in, in the world, when when your political leaders have the ability to define what's right and what's wrong, you're in trouble. No one has the ability 
to tell God what's morally right and what's morally wrong. It's right and it's wrong. And it's God who's already determined that. And so when we use the word politically correct in that sense, that is a scary term to adopt for us as people. Meaning when God created government, he didn't create government so that the government could tell the people what's right and wrong. When God made government, God allows government to exist in order that government can preserve and protect. Meaning if, if you read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, remember, remember this section of the Bible for a minute. It's going to be relevant in the end. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, it says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or the governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The preservation and the protection of society. God uses government for that purpose, and it's God's desire that we submit to government. And so, so the Bible gives us this illustration to us as people. When, when government calls you to do things, obey that. When government calls you in immorality to disobey God, follow God. His authority always trumps any authority. God calls us to morally follow him before God calls us to follow anyone else. Sometimes governments do things that we don't like. I, I don't like the, um, I love government, I love, you know, pray for our, pray for our governmental leaders, I, but I don't like speed limits, right? <laughs> you know, if I could drive however fast I wanted to, I would, <laughs> but, uh, and, but slow in your neighborhood. Um, and, but, but the point is this, that God sees the need for government to preserve and protect. So, so the Bible it tells us all things that are important of, of matters of faith and life follow it. But there are things the Bible doesn't describe, like, like um, giving us a blood alcohol limit for, for protection while you're driving, or, or the speed limit, or, or developing police officers for the preservation and protection. The, the, the government has the ability to figure out those things in order to govern uh, our society in a way that preserves and, and protects. It becomes important for us. Matter of fact, I wrote up here Genesis 9 and verse 6 is right after the flood, God gives man the ability to, to practice capital punishment. When you have an individual who doesn't appreciate the sacredness of life and he begins to take others' lives, then by his life, may, or your, his life you may take is what it says in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Government exists to preserve and protect. But when government takes over the right of determining what's morally right and morally wrong, it becomes dangerous for a society. Because the education of the people then becomes to turn itself against God. Now, I would say in this passage that we're studying in 1 Samuel, it's a little bit backwards for us because what the people are doing in the nation of Israel are forcing political leaders to then alienate God in their relationship with Him. I think it can happen both ways. But do you know when you study our existence of us as a nation, that the purpose behind our existence and while we are established was rooted in who God is. I was listening to a, a speaker the other day say that, that the Constitution of the United States was a beautiful thing written for us because it was identified in God, but honestly, it was just a sail on the ship. Meaning once this, this sail disattaches itself from the ship or the foundation through which it finds its significance, it becomes useless in its purpose. The reason that it becomes so beautiful for us in the way that it was written because its foundation is found upon God. 
And it began with the operation that there is a morality that all of us are called to as human beings to follow. When you read, when you read the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln leading our nation through a difficult time, one of the probably guys that I would first like to meet in heaven, I'd say one of the greatest American presidents, if not the greatest, he says this, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I wonder where he got that. (laughs) Sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Also sounds like the Declaration of Independence. That from these honored dead, we take increase. He's speaking at Gettysburg about the dead, the dead, the people who had passed and fighting the battle. We take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God, I love that, political leaders seeing his position under God shall have a new birth of freedom. That government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from this earth. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is identifying us as being created in his image and saying these dead on this battlefield this day have given their lives for this great nation, understanding its foundation upon God. And when that foundation goes, so does the identity of who the nation is. The Declaration of Independence says this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. I mean, it's just apparent that we have this moral ability within us from God, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these things, governments are instituted among men. They're defining 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. This is what government is for. God has created us in this particular way and the morality and the law for which God has given us in governing people. We understand as government that responsibility to preserve and protect. When people stray from that, When the people attempt to force upon the government what's right and what's wrong, or the government begins to dictate what morality is, we lose ourselves. We desire to redefine morality. Do do you know where that starts in the Bible? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the garden, the serpent comes before Adam and Eve, and he poses the question. He says, surely God didn't say that, did he? Surely God didn't tell you that was the right way, did he? And then Eve begins to think about it. Maybe not. Maybe I know what's right, right? And it tells us that as she takes the fruit, she knows the the difference between knowledge of good and evil, which the passage literally reads this way, that they're going to dictate to God what is good and what is bad. All the way back from the Garden of Genesis, man has attempted to redefine their morality apart from God. And Samuel knew. Samuel knew this this position that he carried before the Lord was sacred. And so in chapter 1 and verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8 and and, and verse 7, it says this, the Lord said to Samuel, I love this, because Samuel's taken it to heart. 
He knows his role before God. He knows he's just been faithful to declare, and, and no one's listening to him, and he's getting upset. And, and he says, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. I would say this as individuals. God calls you into the world to represent him, to be faithful to him and to share him. And when you go into this world and you do that, don't take it to heart because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. Samuel in these moments saw the sacredness of his position before God. He grieved as the Lord would grieve over the people that had turned their backs on, on God. The Bible tells us that when they turn their backs on God, that the people have a political leader whose interest then is apart from, from God, and, and his desire becomes this, the same. While the people want to redefine what morality is before the Lord and, and to live how they desire apart from God, the, their first king that comes into power decides to, to still attend church, but, but really to abuse God for, for his own purposes in it. It says this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 that it begins to describe for us Saul, who was the first king appointed in Israel, anointed by Samuel, goes into battle. And the nation of Israel, before they went into battle, was to make a, a sacrifice. And, and Samuel had told Saul that he's going to come on the seventh day and he's, he's going to make this sacrifice for, for the people, that they can go into battle and be victorious. And Saul became impatient on the seventh day. And so it says this, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering uh, from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And, And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Samuel identifies the the crux of the problem in in the last verse of this passage, that God desires a man after his own heart. And you could look at this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Saul made a sacrifice, right? But it tells us within the passage of Scripture that the reason that Saul is following the sacrificial system isn't because Saul desires God, but Saul rather desires what he can get from God. And so he looks at this moment and he looks at this battle and he says, you know what, if I hurry up and do this sacrifice and we go fight, I can hurry up and, and get, get the win that I desire and the victory that, that I want from the Lord. And so I'll do what God calls me to do just so I can get what I think I can get from God. And he abuses his power before the Lord. And then Samuel reminds us, look, it's not about what you do. It's about who you pursue. You have no authority to do this. And apart from God, you have no ability to do this. When you come before the Lord in worship, it's not about what you get. It's about who you get. Let me tell you the way that we tend to think wrongly as believers in what Saul is doing. 
we tend to think about heaven as, oh man, I'm so glad I get to heaven. But do you realize the prize of heaven is Jesus? I get to heaven so I can be with Jesus. I come to church with God's family so I can be with Jesus together. I go out on Monday and I do things for the Lord because I desire to walk with Jesus. It's not about what I get, but it's about who I get. The nation of Israel can be identified through the life of Saul. I mean, they just looked at God throughout the wanderings of the wilderness of what's God going to give us now? What's God going to give us now? And they, they just missed the point. God has given you himself. This is why Samuel sees his position so sacred. He's a priest before the Lord. He is the one who comes before his throne and represents the people before God. To him, it is sacred. So what makes a a good leader for Christ? He is in a position to serve as sacred. He's not going to God to get what he wants. He's going to God to get God. He wants to hear from God and to respond. Why is this attitude of Samuel so important for us? You saw in in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 to 14 describing the idea of government. But here's why it becomes so important for us as individuals as we look not only at those two verses, but we take a step back for a minute and just look at what's surrounding verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter. Look what, what, what the Bible says for believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Saying in the Old Testament, God worked through a particular tribe, calling a particular people to be priests, representing him in the temple. But when you come to the New Testament, God has called everyone who has put their faith in Christ as priests before their king. You think about the responsibility in that passage. No, no longer is the Levite representing the nation of Israel and the world. The believers in Christ are re- representing the world before God. The Bible tells us in this passage that all of us have become priests before the Lord. It's not gender specific. Male, female, who know the Lord represent the people of this world before God. You are a chosen people. You are a a royal priesthood. It goes on and says this, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, As aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, don't try to look like the other nations which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, 
that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. For what credit is there when we, you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Listen, don't get on Christian radio and start telling everyone's the Antichrist. <laughs> or if you call it Christian radio, I don't know what it is. But rather understand your position is sacred. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, come boldly to his throne. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you have been baptized into one body through the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 6, 19, you are the temple of God. I mean, you don't have to go somewhere to find God. His presence is there before you. You come directly before his throne, representing his glorious name. Listen, if you want to see a change for the sake of the Lord, don't complain, do something. Because the position that God called you to is sacred. You think, how do you, how do you change the, the direction of a nation if its behavior is one that denies God? The first is point them to Jesus, but may we as people see the significance of raising up a godly generation that understands that we do not define morality, that God has done it, and we pursue Him and respond. That's about relationship. The priesthood isn't just for Levites. It's not just for men, but it's those who have come to Christ. It's, it, it isn't up to the government. It's up to Jesus' people who crave his presence to proclaim his name and live for him. And when the world falls against you, your decision already rests in the king that you are pursuing. And when they have rejected you, they, we don't look at it as rejecting us, but having rejected him. But we know God wants a man after his own heart. So we pursue God, who is the greatest prize. So the point of First Samuel sets the basis of this. Samuel's desire should be our desire. We don't go to God for what we get. We go to God to get God. We understand that what God desires is a man after his own heart and what we as people in the Lord represent before him are priests who, who come before his throne representing this world on his behalf. God has called you to a position that is sacred. And as people, where it brings us is not to a place where we attack maliciously against someone but we pray for them and we share truth with them and we ask God that he may use that truth to transform the hearts of people that their hearts may be changed knowing as first Peter said we were once in darkness ourselves but now we're in light we were once a people who hadn't received mercy, but now, thanks to Christ, have received mercy. 
We were once aliens and foreigners from God, but now he has called us as a holy people to proclaim his glorious name. How do we win on Sunday? Connect with him. Connect with him from the heart and allow the praise of the Lord to come from our voice that he may be glorified knowing that we are priests before our king.